0: Hi. This is Welcome to Self, and I'm your host, Dr. Hayley Dequin. Fellow human, business owner, clinical psychologist, and coach. Welcome to Self is a place where you can come and learn about the practices that assist us as humans. Realize that you're not alone in the ways you struggle, and have your curiosity piqued on various topics as I chat to wonderful guests or bring you solo episodes. This is a place to remember that you are human first and have different roles in your life that need your attention. And for that, you need to take care of yourself in the best way you can. My aim is that this is a place of nourishment, growth, and nurture. A place where you can welcome yourself. Welcome to the episode. It's really great to be back. And this time I'm bringing you another guest. I reached out to my next guest on Twitter and she very graciously replied to a random stranger and agreed to come on my podcast. So I'm excited to bring this one to you. Dr. Valerie Young is widely regarded as the thought leader on imposter syndrome and co-founder of Imposter Syndrome Institute with the mission of stamping out imposter syndrome. She shared her insightful and practical advice with over half a million people around the world including at such diverse organizations as Google, Pfizer, Boeing, Intel, Facebook, Microsoft, Chrysler, BP, T Rowe Price, IBM, HelloFresh, JP Morgan, NASA, the National Cancer Institute and the MBA as well as at over 100 universities in the US, Canada, Europe, Japan and the UK including Harvard, Stanford, MIT, and Oxford. Her award-winning book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women and Men, Why Capable People Suffer from Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It with Random House, is available in six languages, and her advice has appeared in dozens of major media outlets from India to Brazil, including BBC Radio, CNN, Money, Time, Newsweek, the New York Times, Science, Chicago Tribune, and the Sydney Morning Herald. As you can see, very accomplished woman. Valerie earned her doctoral degree in education from the University of Massachusetts, where she studied internal barriers to women's occupational achievement. Although her research subjects consisted of a racially diverse group of professional women, much of Valerie's original findings have proved directly applicable to anyone with imposter feelings. No stranger to entrepreneurship, she launched her first online business in 1998, which she then sold in 2020. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Valerie to the podcast. So hi, Valerie. Thank you so much for being here with me on the podcast. I randomly reached out to you on Twitter after reading your book, and you very graciously replied to a random stranger and agreed to come onto my podcast. So thank you so much for being here. Well, I'm, uh, I'm honoured that you asked. Fantastic. So could we please start perhaps with you telling us a little bit about yourself, what led you to becoming an expert in imposter syndrome and co-founding the Imposter Syndrome Institute?
1: Sure. You know, I can't say I ever set out to be an expert on imposter syndrome. It really kind of stemmed from my own need to understand, you know, what was happening for me as a, a young uh doctoral student and quickly discovered uh, a lot of people felt the same way. So, I'm my degree is in education, unlike a lot of people like yourselves who are psychologists in this field. So, my impetus was to really uh, apply what I'd learned from my research and create what I now realize is probably the first educational solution, educational intervention, if you will, to, to imposter syndrome. Um, it's morphed and changed and uh, over the years, but uh, it's something that seems to, the approach seems to resonate with people is obviously a lot of people go to therapy for imposter phenomena or get uh, get coaching. Um, but this is really the direction that I decided to go. Yeah, fantastic. So what, do you, what would you say are
0: the most common features of imposter syndrome? Because I do think it's something that many, if not all of us, at some point in our lives will experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, a majority of people do. There are people who have the opposite problem, you know, irrational self-confidence syndrome. Right? Right? Their, yeah. their belief in their knowledge and skills far exceeds their actual knowledge and skills. But... It's a great question because a lot of people mistakenly see imposter syndrome as kind of synonymous with the normal nervousness ahead of, you know, let's say a job interview or or making a presentation. And it you know it, it's more than that. It really fundamentally comes down to this kind of core often kind of, you know, secret from the world belief that we're not as intelligent, capable, competent, talented, qualified as other people seem to think we are. And, and what is so fascinating, as you know, about imposter syndrome is that we have this belief despite concrete, sometimes overwhelming evidence of our past accomplishments or, or our abilities. So people who feel like imposters have become very adept at essentially saying, you know, sure, I did it, right? Sure, I'm successful, but I can explain all that. So they externalize their accomplishments, chalk them up to things like luck, timing, computer error, you know, personality, uh, connections, uh, and then you know, when they do succeed, they have this fear that they're going to be found out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, I can relate to that. I, I actually dropped out of school and then ended up going to university and completing a PhD. But during my time at uni, I can remember when things would come back and they'd been marked. If I did well, which I I did do well at uni, I was used to think, oh, I got the easy marker. They probably right. didn't read mine properly. They just skimmed through and just gave me a good mark because they wanted to have it finished right, <laughs> rather right. than recognizing it as my work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've heard people say, well, they know I'm a single mom and I'm, you know, I'm working two jobs. So they just, they're being lenient. They feel sorry for me. You know? <laughs> so they're not being very rigorous in their grading.
0: Yeah, well, I was a single mom when I was at university. I never thought that one. I never thought of the sympathy angle, but there you go. Had I, had I, that would have been another one I'd have added to my reasons mm-hmm. why I'd done well. So what do you think are some of the things that you see and recognize as imposter syndrome that maybe people wouldn't recognize for themselves?
1: Um, I think partly what I see is the behaviors. People often are unconscious about how it shows up in the form of behaviors, that these feelings translate into behaviors. Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, who, as you know, are the two clinical psychologists who first coined the term "imposter phenomenon" in 1978, they identified different what they call common coping and protecting strategies or mechanisms or behaviors. Uh, I've added a few to those based on my observations over the years. But what people don't often recognize is that sometimes things like overworking, overpreparing—I mean, I'm not talking about good old-fashioned hard work, but the sense that you know, I have to work harder than other people to be I'm not as intelligent or procrastination on important things. I mean, we all procrastinate, but this is where there's kind of the sense that um, if I do it at the last minute and it's successful, then I think I've fooled them. Right. But it, if it reflects my lack of time and effort, then I have kind of a built in. Excuse uh, for a lot of people, and I see this especially with women. Not uniquely, is another behavior is kind of flying under the radar, kind of holding back, not going for challenging opportunities or assignments, not speaking up in class or, or meetings, um, not starting or growing a business or getting our art to a gallery. This, the sense if I can kind of keep my head down, play small, they won't they won't find me out because all of these strategies are designed to help us manage the anxiety of kind of waiting to be found out and actually avoid being found out
0: yeah absolutely i certainly see that in my work supervising other health professionals but also coaching business women that that is some of the stuff isn't it stays play small stay small yeah. yeah well
1: it's it's safer there right if you if you kind yeah. of pop your head out it's kind of the, a little bit of the tall poppy syndrome right that's you pop your head out. There's consequences, and you could be disappointed, or humiliated, or or fail, and people might judge you.
0: Yeah, and I think that that feeling, isn't it? If I pop my head out, then actually I might get found out that I'm a fraud and I'm an imposter. Oh, <laughs> so I'll gosh, just stay no. down here and stay small. So, in your vast experience with this, what sorts of things have you seen imposter syndrome impact for people? And we've talked about some of them now, but what 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 have been the impacts of this on people's lives? Do you think?
1: That's a really good question, because I don't think people are as tuned into that as they should be, that there really are costs and consequences for individuals, but also for organizations. So on the individual side, I mean, if you're chronically overworking, and and I want to be really clear, I'm not talking about good old-fashioned hard work, um, but if you are overworking, over-preparing, there's health consequences. Mm -hmm. Um, It means you're not leaving time for other things that are important in your life, whether it's exercise or or relationships. Um, If you chronically procrastinate, you know, sooner or later, probably some ball is going to get dropped and there's going to be a price there. Certainly, if you're flying under the radar, um, there's, and I would say there's a financial cost for any of those behaviors, but there's especially a financial cost there, but you don't get your work out into the world. You don't see how far you could have gone or good, bad, or indifferent, right? To to get yeah. that information that you need. And I would say there's a cost for everyone because, you know, as I always say, everybody loses when bright people play small, uh, but increasingly organizations. And you asked at the, at the top why I decided to start imposter Syndrome Institute it's really to kind of bring the work into organizations, whether it's universities or you know major corporations and, and help them understand that there's kind of a missing link with a lot of focus on psychological safety right now, which has to do with the organization taking steps to make people feel safe, asking questions or making mistakes. but there's really nothing happening on the individual side to help them. Shift their thinking so they're also more comfortable speaking out, asking questions, failing, and so on. Yeah. So there's lots of impact, isn't there, on
0: lots of different levels? And I think when you were just saying, if people don't put their work out into the world, good, bad, or indifferent, I think if we're not showing up as ourselves, we're not getting the feedback we need to get actually a true
1: picture as well of who we are and where we're at, are we? You know, you're absolutely right. And for people who feel like imposters, for many of us you know even constructive feedback which let's face it feels like criticism to us you know can be deeply wounding you know we, i think we let it mean more about who we are as a person so if somebody says your work was inadequate we hear i'm inadequate yeah um uh, but the, the only way we're going to get the information we need to get better is to is to get feedback whether it's from the marketplace or from from other people whatever that might look like
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what would you share with someone who struggles with imposter syndrome in order for them to help themselves?
1: Um, I think the first thing that I would point out is that the statistic that's thrown around most often is that 70% of people have had these feelings at one time or another. And so in some arenas, it's, it's even higher than that. But the point I would make to them is that that means we're in the majority. So the question is like, what's up with the other 30? Like, why aren't we studying them, right? So some part of that 30 does have that other problem I talked about, that irrational self-confidence syndrome. Um, But there's another part of that group who's a minority within a minority who we do want to better understand. Those are people who have genuinely never felt like an imposter and who are genuinely humble. And I think that the awareness that there are people out there who don't feel like imposters is important because we often conflate confidence and competence in other words we think if i was really competent i wouldn't even i wouldn't feel like an imposter yeah so the fact that i even feel like an imposter was proof i must be one right because we think you know competence being means being confident 24 7 and and in fact it doesn't no no wow um oh.
0: So what would you say is the most important thing for people then to know about imposter syndrome? I mean, obviously, it's that this thing of you, you're not alone in this. This is really a very common phenomenon for people. But what do you think is the most important thing people need to know?
1: Yeah, well, you you actually nailed one right there. This notion like, wait a minute, there's a name for this? Yeah. <laughs> other people feel the same way. That can be very liberali- liberating. Um, but along with that, and you know, I'm always reluctant to, to say this in front of a psychologist, but I think imposter syndrome has been over psychologized. Uh-huh. I think we need to step back and do less psychologizing and more contextualizing to help people understand the kind of perfectly good reasons why they or others might experience imposter feelings. And honestly, I struggle with sometimes people on I hear in other podcasts or on LinkedIn who who say with great confidence that, you know, the, the, the core of imposter syndrome is this inherent sense of unworthiness or your parents shamed you and that's why you feel like an imposter. And I'm like, you know, so does that mean people in STEM? Who are much more likely to experience imposter feelings feel more unworthy, or people in creative fields, or students as a segment of the population for whom are much more likely to feel like imposters. I mean, never mind uh, understanding the social realities of there's reasons why women, people of color, folks with disabilities, people who are first generation professionals, maybe people who are doing work or business or school in another language are more likely to feel like imposters you know connected to stereotypes and not having the sense of belonging. So I think we need to kind of zoom out sometimes and get the view from 20,000 feet. flip the question from not why do I feel like an imposter but how could I not?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Look I think you're talking to a psychologist
0: who uh would agree with you there. <laughs> Good. Very much. I think we over-psychologize a lot of things. And I think you're absolutely spot on. I think context matters so much in so many of the things that we struggle with and suffer with as human beings, Um, whether that is our early life experiences or whether that's the context we're in within the social or organisational worlds that we're living in as adults. So, yeah, I would agree with you on that as well.
1: Absolutely. Can I share a quick example? Um, I, I did a podcast for the British Medical society i think it was and there was a medical student and a second or third year physician also on on the on the podcast and they were lamenting the lack of positive feedback you get in medicine especially yeah. in medical school and how hard you work in medical school and at the end you take an exam and in the uk the best you can do the highest grade you can get is no concern. Yeah. We have no concern about you. Like that That's the top you can get, right? So I, I, you know, I want to empathize with them and say, yeah, that sucks, right? You work so hard and you get no positive feedback whatsoever. I said, on the other hand, if you know that that's the organizational context you're in, that's the culture, it allows you to step back and say, okay, I didn't know this was the culture I was going into when I signed up, but this is the culture I'm in. It is not about me. It is about the culture, again, so we can do less personalizing and more contextualizing.
0: Yeah, I love that. It's not about me. I I had an experience a few years ago, um, a colleague, Deborah Lee, who is in the compassion focused therapy field. I had wanted to start doing more training and workshops and was experiencing a lot of anxiety around that. And some of that, of course, was my like, who am I to be doing these workshops and training and my own imposter syndrome showing up? And She quite bluntly turned around to me and said, well, it's not about you, Hayley, (laughs) which has still, I mean, this is quite a few years ago now, has proved to be one of the most helpful things that anyone has ever said to me because it puts it into context for me now that when I'm going to do a training or when I'm doing the podcast or when I'm putting on a workshop or whatever it might be, when my own anxiety starts to show up, I remind myself I have information and knowledge that could be really helpful for somebody that's going to be listening. Now, not everyone might like it and that's okay, but the person or people that need to hear that from me and are going to be there need me to show up. If I get too anxious and decide I'm not going to do it, then not only do I miss out, like you were saying earlier, on living the life I want to live because I do want to do more of this kind of work but also the people that would have been there to hear what they needed to hear are going to miss
1: out as well. I love that. And there was something you said, which I thought was really important, is not everybody is going to benefit from what you have to say. And that's okay. You know, I've done given talks, the exact same talk. I went to, went to British Columbia, did, did a five-city tour. It was completely different in each city. Some cities, they were so excited, they were bouncing off the walls. It was great. Other times, they're kind of, you know, arms folded, you know, not laughing. You know, I wanted to say, are you kidding me? That job killed at the University of Iowa. Uh, but <laughs> I had, it, it was a good, good reminder that it's not always you, right? And yeah. I don't love everyone's art or books or acting. Why should everyone love me and, and my work? So, so I thought that was really important, that piece of what you said, too
0: yeah absolutely so important and again it then it takes the pressure off you as well i'm not going to try and please everybody i'm going to provide what i have to provide and some people will take from that and other people will just leave it on the table and you know they'll never get that time back in
1: their life but you know (laughs) Yeah. yeah and sometimes good enough is good enough
0: yeah absolutely absolutely so in your career you were an early pioneer of diversity, equity, and inclusion training. Could you talk to that intersection between imposter syndrome and diversity, equity, and inclusion?
1: Sure. Um, you know, back in the day when I was doing that work, I, I, I was a graduate student um, in, in the College of Education at the University of Massachusetts, and we didn't call it DEI or diversity and inclusion, we, we called it oppression. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and we were learning, you know, we were just calling it what it was, and yeah. we were designing and delivering adult education learning experiences on not just racism and sexism, but a homophobia and heterosexism, ableism, classism, anti-Semitism, so we, we, you know, these kind of models and frameworks around identity development theory and um, working through uh, different social issues and our looking at our own attitudes, our own behaviors, and being allies, and so on. Um, You know, so it's always been the frame I brought to this conversation. My my dissertation was interviewing 15 professional women, and this was in the early 1980s, uh, and over half of my subjects were women of color, which was very unusual back then. So much research was really done with, you know, white students and rats. Yeah. yeah, basically, and then and then extrapolated to the to, you know, to the entire uh, planet. So I very much see it as something the, the consideration is that if you're whenever you're on the receiving end of stereotypes about competence or intelligence, you're going to be more vulnerable to imposter syndrome. And on some level, certainly to different degrees, but on some level, Everybody knows what that feels like. So, in my talks, for example, I'll say, "How many of you have ever felt underestimated because you were the youngest person in an achievement environment?" And you know, we've all know what that feels like. I mean, because of the stereotypes, right? And I'll yeah. say, "How many of you have been the oldest person and felt underestimated?" When I ask that question to Facebook employees, the thirty-year-olds raise their hand. So it's all—it's all relative. Uh, but because yeah. of the stereotypes, because not always having a sense of belonging those factors also contribute to, uh, to imposter, to imposter feelings.
0: Yeah. Gosh, I think that's so important for people to know and understand as well, isn't it? That it makes sense that if you are in a group that is stereotyped, if you are in a minority group, this is more likely going to be your experience.
1: Yeah. You know, I just, I'm not going to say the name of the agency, but they, they deal with, uh, uh, nuclear energy, and it's a very male-dominated environment, as you can imagine. You know, it's a lot of scientists and STEM, uh, and so they took some kind of a assessment from from another from from a consultant, and the women tested far higher for like not valuing their work and not seeing themselves as valuable than was the norm in other industries and even kind of globally, right? And I, I think they think a lot has to do with being a very distinct minority in that organization. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with a concept called stereotype threat. It was pioneered by Claude Steele from Stanford University. And and just briefly, what they found is that the fear of confirming a a negative stereotype causes stress, which impacts performance. And, And it's counterintuitive, but the more accomplished you are, the more the effect would show up. So for example, with university students, if they told um, young women in college that, oh, the math exam that they're about to take has been found to be gender neutral, they did better. But when right. they somehow implied that, you know, wh- you know, girls, women tend to struggle with this, th- then they did worse, right? Because it kind of reminded them of the stereotype. And, and there's similar examples with, with men in sports and things like that. So um, those things do really matter.
0: Yeah, so for ourselves, reminding ourselves of the context that we live within, within our own lives is so important, isn't it? So we can understand how this might impact us.
1: Well, you know, it goes back to this whole conversation about people who see it only as something about feeling unworthy. And I I think Michelle Obama, who famously talked about her own imposter syndrome, I don't think she feels unworthy. I think she understands the pressure of being the first Black woman Uh, First Lady of the United States and that she now represents all other African-Americans. I mean, that's a pretty heavy burden to have to carry.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? So you
1: run your own business.
0: Sorry, you run your own business. You spend time teaching, speaking, writing. You have a great TED Talk um, and you have obvious success in your career. Do you still experience imposter syndrome yourself? And what do you do to manage that if you do?
1: Honestly, I don't, and let me tell you why. And let me be clear: it doesn't mean I don't have performance anxiety. No. Um, I just got asked to be on a podcast. I don't. Do you know who Paula Poundstone is? She's a well-known comedian in in the U.S., so a lot of people know her here. So I just literally today got asked to be on her podcast or if Oprah called tomorrow, right? I would be very anxious at first I think like, what am I gonna wear? And then I think like, what do I know, right? So these thoughts would run through my head. (laughs) I love that
0: you go to what am I gonna wear before you you go to what do I know?
1: (laughs) Well, they're all kind of, you know, mixed together in there, but you know, all those things kind of wrap up, especially for for women. Um, You know, but it's like this very, you know, this momentary, this kind of fleeting thought, right? To me, it's about being able to talk yourself down more quickly. Uh, You know, you mentioned that, that Ted talk that was, we were given six minutes. It's actually more difficult to do a six minute, like beginning, middle, end than the 18 minutes. Most people get, it was at Ted headquarters in front of other Ted speakers. The one of the most stressful things I'd ever done in my life. I spent hundreds of hours writing it, timing it, practicing it. And I wanted to crush it. Like we know what it feels like, no matter what your work is to like, walk away and go like nailed it. Right. I did not have that feeling when I walked off that stage. Matter of fact, in the middle of it, it's not clear to people watching, but I lost my train of thought. And I kind of quickly said something and just threw something in and then kind of got back on track. But it was stressful. So I was telling that to a group when I was doing a talk and someone said, oh, so you felt like an imposter. And I said, no, I was disappointed. I didn't feel like I'd fooled anybody. I didn't discount my previous accomplishments or knowledge or abilities. Um, In other words, I wasn't externalizing my success. I was disappointed. And, and for them, that was this big aha moment that you can still be, you can be crushingly disappointed, but, but not ashamed, which, you know, is more the imposter syndrome piece.
0: Yeah. I think that's, that's really important that you mentioned that because they are so different, aren't they? And, you you certainly wouldn't notice that you were feeling that performance anxiety or that you had lost your train of thought through your TED talk. And this is the other thing, isn't it? I think oftentimes we experience something, but the people watching us don't know that's happening.
1: Absolutely. You know, I hadn't thought of this for a long, long time until you said that, but one of the first presentations I ever made was as a graduate student I was asked to go a week before I was expecting to. Somebody was sick. They said, can you give your talk? I gave my talk. We were videotaped. My hands were shaking. My voice was shaking. When we watched the tape, you couldn't tell. Yeah. And and I never forgot that, that I experience it, but they don't necessarily see it. Um, So you're right. And to me, it comes to kind of a core tool, which is to Keep going regardless of how you feel. In other words, I see so many people waiting to start their business or get their art into a gallery or go for a promotion. They're waiting until they feel more confident. But but you know this mm. as a psychologist, that's not how it works. That feelings are the last no. to change. You have to change your thoughts yeah. first, then your behaviors, even though you don't believe the new thoughts, but act like you believe them. And over time, mm. the feelings and the confidence will catch up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. So could you share with us what you think are some of the most important factors in terms of taking care of yourself as someone who has many roles and I imagine a busy life?
1: Yeah, I should have some really good answers for you, but I work really hard. I don't exercise enough. You know, I do have a very strong you know, support network of you know of, of friends and so on. But I wish I could say you know I'm this wonderful goal model for self care and wellness. But you know I fall into the same traps that a lot of other people do, especially being self employed. Yeah. You know, your your my my grandmother used to always say to me, "Did you get all your work done today?" And I'd say, yeah, I would just say yes because it was easier, right? Because our work is yeah. never done these days. Yeah.
0: Look, I think running businesses, like you say, particularly being self-employed, um, is tricky. And we all know the sort of things that um, like you could reel them off. Like I should be, should be working less and I should be exercising more. And we know these things, but it's not easy, is it, to be, be doing that all the time. Um, but being in business isn't always easy, whether we're experiencing imposter syndrome or not. How important have you found having a support system? You mentioned that you've got a good support system around you whilst running your business. And what do you find most helpful about that?
1: I think that's absolutely critical, especially for um, self-bossers or aspiring self-bossers and entrepreneurs. But it's also surrounding yourself with the, with the right people. I'm, I'm probably not going to get this quote right, but it, it was by Rumi. And it's something like he was a, a Persian um, philosopher who was something like- uh, One of my favorites. <laughs> when embarking on a journey, never ask for directions from someone who's never left home, something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And, and so often, you know, we talk to the wrong people about our business ideas. or And if you're talking to people who've been an employee their whole life, they don't know how to help you. And I know there's a lot of people out there who say, just get rid of all those negative people in your life. Just cut them out of your life. And I think, well, I liked my grandmother, <laughs> you <know>? but she, <laughs> she didn't, <laughs> but she had the same job for 50 years. So if I would talk about quitting my corporate job, she was not gonna be supportive. She could not help me. And then I realized it also matters who not to go to. I could talk to her about the price of tomatoes or the weather. But not this. So find other people who, who are doing or have done the thing that you want to do. Um, I, I think it's a great idea to have like a Monday morning meeting with somebody. They can be in a completely different business, especially if you're self-employed, you're a solo practitioner, and meet every Monday for an hour and have a, a business meeting. Here's what I'm going to do this week. Here's where I'm struggling, and, and use that person for support or join a local group or or work with you know work with a coach who can really. Keep you on track and help you work through
0: the the tough spots. Yeah, I think you make some really good points there. And you know, different people in our lives can be there for different reasons. And it's not about having to get rid of people in your life, particularly, is it? It's just about being really wise about actually, do I talk to the those particular people about certain aspects of my life? And if it is around business, like you say, if somebody's employed and they've always been employed, it's not that they're not well meaning in what they would share with you or try help you with but they come from a different context so really surrounding yourself with other people who are in business and are doing um not necessarily the same type of business but the same sorts of things they're coming up against because they run businesses and also I think having people around that you can just have some fun with and not think about business and You know, take some time away as well. Oh, absolutely.
1: And sometimes it's a relief to be around people who aren't in business because you're not always talking about it and you can enjoy and chat about all kinds of other things. Take your mind off it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So I asked this question to everybody that comes on the podcast, and I'm always curious about their answer. So if you could meet your 80 year old self, what do you think she would say to you? Well done. Well done. I hope. <laughs> oh, you know, I, I would get, imagine.
1: You know, you get this one. You know, this one time around, and um, you know, I, I I love that question, and I want to give it more of a of a think. Um, but that's the first thing that came to mind. Is I hope. It's just those two words. Well done. I can
0: only imagine that she would. I mean, the work that you've done. The work around diversity, equity, inclusion, the work around imposter syndrome has undoubtedly touched many, many, many lives um, throughout that span of your work already. Um, I'm sure there's many other things you've done in your life outside of those that, you know, I don't know about and other people don't necessarily know about, Um, but the people in your life would know about. so yeah, I think that's really lovely. So if people wanted to find out more about you or get in touch, where can they find you and engage with you and
1: your work? And I'll put some links in the show notes as well. Sure, it could not be easier uh, because I'm at com.
0: <laughs> Very easy to find you, which is great. Um, and well, you're on Twitter because that's how I... Um, Reached out to you on Twitter, and are you on any other other social media? Platforms?
1: Yeah, LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, and you know, for many years I was mostly on Facebook. Um, not on Facebook very much anymore. Mostly, you know, friend and family kinds of things. But I've kind of really switched over to LinkedIn. So that would be just my name, Valerie Young. Uh, and there's also a, a page for uh, Imposter Syndrome Institute as well, and and there we share you know kinds of articles and research and perspective and insight as well.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic.
1: So if you could
0: distill it down, and I know this can be tricky, but into one piece of advice, what would you want our listeners um, to take away from our conversation today?
1: You know, I was going to say it's not tricky, but it is. Let me just tell you a really quick story. I was in this program. I'd spent an obscene amount of money to be in this program for speakers to kind of up-level their business and we were to come up with our point of view. What is your POV? What is your point of view? And, and people really struggled with that. To make, what, what makes you unique? What is your what is your message that's different than other people's? And I would write paragraphs and paragraphs. And the guy who's the coach, he's like, no, that's not it. Nobody cares about that. That's not different. That's not new. And I finally said, the only way to stop feeling like an imposter is to stop thinking like an imposter. And he said, that's it. And he said, he said, "Now that, w- that wasn't hard, was it? I said, frankly, <laughs> obviously it was because it took me months to kind of distill it down to that. But, but it, to me, it is that the only way to stop thinking like an imp- uh, top, feeling like an imposter rather stop thinking like an imposter and to become what I refer to as a humble realist. Somebody who is genuinely humble but has never experienced imposter syndrome who thinks differently about competence has a realistic understanding of what it means to be competent, has a healthy response to failure, mistakes, constructive feedback, and and understands that fear and self-doubt go with the achievement territory. That's what a humble realist is. Yeah.
0: So not thinking like an imposter, humble realism, understanding the context you're in so that we can realize that actually this is maybe why we're, feeling so much like an imposter fantastic Valerie this has been so lovely to chat to you again I'm just thrilled in life you just don't know and I think I put that in in the tweet if you don't ask you don't get and you said absolutely you don't and yes I'm happy to come on your podcast so again you know there could have been a part of me that's like who am I to reach out to people I don't know and ask them to come on my podcast but I did it anyway and I'm really, really thrilled that you've come on. And I think there's some really helpful information for our listeners here. Um, thank you so much for your time, your generosity and your wisdom.
1: I'm glad you asked. If you don't, you're right. If you don't ask, you don't get. And you're inspiring me to tag Michelle Obama. And I wanted, oh, to, be fantastic. My, I wanted to be my new best friend. I love that. I love that you're going to do that.
0: That's fantastic. Please, please do that. <laughs> thank you again
1: so much thank you for having me
0: thank you for sharing this time with me today I hope your time here was helpful and supportive if there has been something in this episode that you found helpful I invite you to share it with another person you think might benefit I'd also love it if you'd leave a five-star rating and review wherever you tune in Ratings and reviews really help to increase awareness of podcasts, meaning I can spread helpful information more widely. All reviews are welcome and much appreciated as I know they take time out of your day. If you'd like to be notified when the next episode airs, please use the link in the show notes to join the mailing list. Music and editing by Nissa Ray. Thanks, Nissa. I wish you all well in your relationship with yourself and may you go well and go gently.